Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at the four lenses of innovation. What the four lenses are and how they can be used to drive corporate innovation. How they can be employed to emulate the mind of the innovator. And what we can learn about innovation from the greatest minds of the Renaissance. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Rowan Gibson, a world-renowned innovation expert and best-selling author who has served as a keynote speaker on the subject of innovation in 60 countries around the world. Rowan's forthcoming book, The Four Lenses of Innovation, a power tool for creative thinking, will hit bookstores around the world today. Rowan has previously written two major books on corporate innovation and business strategy, Innovation to the Core and Rethinking the Future, both of which are published today in over 20 languages. Rowan is also the co-founder of InnovationExcellence.com, the most popular innovation website in the world, which is built on an international group of over 22,000 members from 175 countries. If you've been a longtime listener of this podcast, you'll remember Rowan from the 13th episode of The Innovation Engine, when we talked about building a blueprint for innovation. Welcome back to the podcast, Rowan. Thanks, Will. Good to be back. Absolutely. So let's start off today talking about your latest book, which is called The Four Lenses of Innovation. Uh, It will hit bookstores the day this podcast goes live on March 2nd. So congratulations on that. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. What What are some of the main takeaways that you hope readers get from the book? Well, I, I hope that people take away from the book that, you know, we can all be innovators. You know, we used to look at the people that sort of make it to the front cover of um, a fast company, you know, or Forbes and, and think, well, they're just special, right? They're more creative than the rest of us. They're these people that have a kind of entrepreneurial gene, an ability to spot big opportunities before anybody else. And then they take these huge risks to make them happen. And, you know, Someone like, I guess, Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson or Elon Musk, you know, those kind of guys. And so there's this guy grinning at me from the front cover of, of the magazine, you know, and looking all superhuman in his suit. Or maybe today it's more likely to be a T-shirt and jeans, you know, but the super achiever. Right. And, and, it, and it turns out that innovators actually are mere mortals, you know, just like you and me. It's like, uh, do you remember The Wizard of Oz? Of course. You know, when, when you look behind the curtain, you find out there's this little person sitting there who's just as human as we are. So, so you know, what's the secret sauce? What are the, the innovators doing differently? And, and more importantly, how can we do what they do? And, and the great news here is that actually it's really quite simple. It's all about developing the right mental perspectives. So it's essentially about and here I'm going to use the word for the first time, the lenses we use to look at the world around us. And in particular, the way we look at particular situations or problems. So the main takeaway from the book for me is that we can all discover great opportunities for innovation if we can learn to look at the world the same way innovators do. And that's nowhere near as hard as it sounds. You know, one of the things that strikes me when I read all these after the fact stories about great cases of innovation in the business press is that nobody ever seems to try to analyze the thinking processes that might have led to those ideas. Do you know what I mean? So they sort of go, so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that and it's really great, but they don't kind of go, okay, let's sort of 
dig a little deeper and figure out what was this person thinking? You know, how did he or she spot some huge opportunity that nobody else seems to have seen? What was the what was the innovator's angle of view? So this book is essentially about understanding these thinking patterns, the thinking patterns that lead innovators to their big ideas. And then it's really about emulating those thinking patterns, you know, actually using these same perspectives, I call them lenses, systematically to uncover new insights and ideas that are, are out there just waiting to be discovered. So it's really about reverse engineering the mind of the innovator. And I've come to believe that you can learn to innovate, just as you can learn to play the piano, you can learn to cook, you know, you can learn anything else. For some people, of course, it comes more naturally than for others, um, either by nature or by nurture or some interaction of both of those things. Some individuals have managed to develop their innovation skills to a much higher degree than others, okay? We know that. but. Creativity is not some rare mystical power that's possessed by only a few specially gifted people who are simply born different from the rest of us. It really is a skill that's innate in all human beings. And it always has been from the time that somebody, you know, first picked up a stone and figured out how to use it as a tool. So all of us have this mental capacity for idea generation and imaginative problem solving and all of us can improve our creative abilities. So if that's the takeaway, think about it. What's the implication that this has for companies? If you really can teach people the skills and the tools of innovation, if you can teach literally anyone, anywhere, to develop the mind of the innovator, imagine how that's going to unlock the brain power of the whole organization. You know, imagine how that would unleash creativity. And that's the promise. That's the, I guess, the key takeaway of the book. You know, the subtitle is, is a, a power tool for creative thinking. And that's what I believe it is. I think it's going to dramatically enhance our capacity for innovation, both as individuals and as companies. Okay, great. And and the book looks at innovation through something of a historical lens. You talk a lot about the Renaissance and the, the mindset that the, that, uh, you know, that some of the brightest minds of the Renaissance had what do today's innovators owe to their predecessors from the renaissance yeah that's a that's a great question you know the the first part of the book actually goes back in time it's not really what i intended when i sort of sat down to write the book but i i got really deeply into this this whole subject and i went back in time and looked at this tremendous this this period of tremendous creativity and invention and and innovation in europe between the 14th and the 17th centuries and, you know, you, you look back at that and you go, whoa, you know, what, what happened there? And, of course, a lot of it had to do with the cultural environment. It all started in those booming city-states in North Italy, like Venice and Florence and Milan, where these rich merchant families, so we've heard of the Medicis, you know, they, they became patrons of some of the best artists and scientists and thinkers of their time. So these these brilliant people all kind of came together and they had the opportunity to cross-pollinate ideas and insights from their different fields, different disciplines and cultures. So that Renaissance thing was a, a real intersection point in history. And out of that came so much that was new and revolutionary and exciting. But again, I think there was more to the story than just this kind of cultural thing. Mm -hmm. So some, some modern writers, and if you think about some of the books we've read recently on 
on creativity and innovation, but they kind of point to the Renaissance and they, they say, well, that was it. You know, it was all about creating this network effect. It was all about building the right environment for creativity and innovation to flourish. So if you, if you do that in our organizations, you know, you'll be fine. You sit back and wait for the sparks to fly. Of course, I agree that it's, it's really important for companies to do that. But I wanted to dig a lot deeper into what happened in the, in the Renaissance. And I wanted to figure out what those, those brilliant innovators, you know, like Da Vinci or Galileo or Gutenberg, what were they thinking? Because if we're going to solve the mystery of where new ideas come from, we need to understand not just the environments that enhance our capacity to dream up and introduce new things, but we also need to understand the thinking processes inside the human mind that lead innovators to their eureka moments. And what we find out is that the, the uh, Renaissance was a special time in history because Western Europeans were beginning to throw off the, the sort of the mental constraints of the, the medieval era, you know, the dark ages. Um, so, you know, back then it was like, you know, in the medieval times, it was you, you can't think this and you can't think that and you can't ask questions or you'll be burned at the stake as a heretic. And, uh, and so in the Re Renaissance, they were embracing a completely new philosophy called humanism. And that philosophy encouraged people for the first time, really, to tap into their own intellectual and creative capacities in, in really unprecedented ways. So it wasn't just about the cultural change, you know, and the ability to network with other brilliant people. It was also about the mental change, you know, the fundamental change in outlook and perspectives that opened people's minds to, to new ideas and opportunities. And what I discovered in going back in time was that there were these four main perspectives that became prevalent in the Renaissance period. So first was this tendency to challenge conventional wisdom. You know, what if the earth is not the center of the universe? What if it revolves around the sun along with all the other planets? You know, what if everything we know about human anatomy and medicine and chemistry and physics is like nonsense? What if we challenged our traditional understandings of these things, these theories that have been around and uncontested for like a thousand years since the times of ancient Greece and Rome. Or it was Columbus saying, what if we could get to the East Indies much faster by sailing west instead of east and circumnavigating the globe? You know, and then it was Amerigo Vespucci who said, what if these new lands where you're sitting right now, you know, that Columbus has discovered are not the Indies at all? What if it's a whole new continent, a new world? So, so these were very contrarian questions, very different ways of thinking that challenged a lot of orthodoxy. So that was the first perspective. The second perspective that was really prevalent back then had to do with trends. You know, the Renaissance period was an age of the new. There were these new philosophies, there were new kinds of art and music and architecture and new scientific breakthroughs. There were new industrial methods, there were new trading routes. There were new influences coming from the East, you know, as they were shipping around the world. There were new methods of transportation. There were even new countries and new, a whole new continent on the map. There were new kinds of food. There was new styles of clothing. So there was this, just this whole explosion of, you know, newness. And the innovators were people who saw all this change going on around them. 
And they were able to spot and exploit the opportunities that were inherent in those trends. So that was the second perspective. The third perspective was about looking at skills and assets in new ways and then figuring out how to stretch them or recombine them or repurpose them in order to do totally new things. So prior to that, if you go back to the Middle Ages, people used to learn a trade uh, in their lives and that was that. You know, you were a carpenter or you were a, a goldsmith or whatever. And that's basically all you did your whole life. But then in the Renaissance, people started to ask, what else could I do with these skills? You know, how could I stretch them into new opportunities? So somebody like Gutenberg, for example, studied to be a goldsmith, just like his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. But, but he said to himself, maybe I don't have to spend the rest of my life making coins in the royal mint, you know, like all my ancestors. Maybe I can, I can do something else with these metalworking skills. And his big idea, of course, was to create metal movable type. So he was using his skills as a, as a metal worker, a goldsmith. And so that, that metal type really was the beginnings of, you know, the idea of a printing press that went on to literally change the world. But it was also about using not just the skills, but assets differently too, because once Gutenberg had cast those individual metal, you know, letters, he needed to, to build some form of press. And he got his inspiration from a device that had been around for thousands of years, one that was used very commonly back then in the Rhineland region of Germany where he was living, and that was the wooden wine press. So this third perspective is about redeploying skills, redeploying assets in completely new ways or new contexts. And then finally, this the fourth mental perspective that became really prevalent in that era was a kind of rampant curiosity about how everything works, the, the human body, the natural world around us, the, the universe. How does that all work? And there was this desire to use all of that new knowledge to make the world a better place. And, you know, that's always been quite fundamental to innovation and to human progress, this, this attempt to better understand the mechanical forces of nature and then manipulate those forces in some way in an effort to improve quality of life or productivity. But the medieval era, you know, before that had been a time when people were really constrained from, from doing that by the church. You know, that's why they call it the dark ages. So progress effectively came to a grinding halt for about a thousand years. And then along came the, the Renaissance and the humanist movement. And, you know, people suddenly felt mentally liberated to kind of get out there and study everything and make things better for themselves and for the next generation. So, so they were able to discover innovative solutions to important human needs and problems, some of which, you know, we still benefit from today. So, so really, it, it turns out that there were these four perspectives or thinking patterns that seem to drive great leaps of creativity and innovation. And the basic premise of the book is that they've been the catalyst for innovation throughout human history not just in the, re the Renaissance period, but you know, since the beginning of time. And they're exactly the same perspectives that have allowed modern day innovators to discover their big ideas. So there's really not that much difference between Renaissance innovators like Galileo or, or Gutenberg or Leonardo da Vinci and some of our innovation heroes today, like say Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson. They're all using 
exactly the same perspectives, whether they're conscious of it or not, to come up with their breakthrough innovations. So these these four perspectives are the four lenses of innovation that I'm referring to in the title of the book. And the, the rest of the book is about using those lenses to drive your innovation efforts and to sort of infuse creativity into your organization. Okay, great. So, uh, so you talk in the book about the importance of building what you call a, or an all the time, everywhere capability for innovation within a company. What do you think is the fundamental building block of establishing that kind of culture? Well, I think, first of all, you have to believe deep down that literally everyone has the potential to be an innovator. Mm-hmm. You know, and the creative thinking can come from any part of the company, not just R&D or new product development or marketing and so on, but also from the HR function or, or finance or IT or wherever else, including the janitors. In fact, there are a lot of anecdotes about interesting innovations that were originally suggested by the janitor. One of them was the idea of, for example, putting elevators on the outside of buildings. You know, now you, you now have an elevator on the outside. And you, you, it's kind of a glass elevator so you can see what's going on. Um, as you go up and down the building. Well, that that idea actually came from the janitor of a hotel in San Diego called the El Cortez. And that became the first building in the world to put an elevator on the outside wall of the buildings. It was the janitor that suggested that. Um, And by the way, that's an example of challenging orthodoxies, you know, the first lens of innovation. And then another would be um, flaming hot Cheetos, you know, the chili flavored Cheetos. (laughs) Yeah, this was an idea that actually came from a young Mexican janitor in one of the Frito-Lay plants. And, and again, that was a case of leveraging resources in new ways, like bringing together like a, a cheese-flavored uh, or corn-flavored thing with, with chili and whatever. So it's now the biggest selling um, snack at Frito-Lay. It's one of the most successful snack products of all time, but it came actually from listening to an idea from a janitor. So, so what's fundamental to building this all-the-time-everywhere capability for innovation that I talk about is this belief that there is creativity inside all of us and that all we have to do is somehow unlock that ability to innovate. You know, for too long we've had a kind of, how can I put it, we've we've sort of venerated innovators as if they have some magical skill that we don't have. But, you know, it's simply not true. Creativity is part of what makes us human. All of us share the same basic DNA. So the starting point for turning a company into an innovation powerhouse is the belief that literally everyone everywhere can develop the mind of the innovator. If we use the right environmental factors, which are important, but also if we teach people to use the the four lenses of innovation, these perspectives, then we really can help them to bring out their inner genius. So let's, let's talk about patterns for a second, because that's something that you write about in the book, and I think it's something that's necessary to, to break if you do want to have that kind of innovation from all parts of the company. How do yeah. patterns get to be so ingrained in our daily lives, and what does it take to break them in the name of innovation? Yeah, this is the second section of the book. It's called The Power of Patterns, and it basically looks at why most of us are not actually using those innate creative skills that we're born with. So, you know, we've set up this, 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 this premise that we all have those skills. So why aren't we using them? Or at least why aren't we using them to their full potential? And we really have to understand this problem if we're going to overcome the barriers to creative thinking that all of us experience, not just as individuals, but also 
across our organizations. You know, so what exactly is it that's getting in the way? And again, you could argue that it's the corporate culture, that it's, you know, the culture's not conducive to new thinking and experimentation and risk taking. So people just end up, you know, they shut up and they get on with their jobs. And that would be an extrinsic barrier, the, the cultural environment. And it can be, very often is a real roadblock to innovation. But we also have these kind of intrinsic barriers to creativity. And, and really it's all about a, it's, it's a neurological problem in a way. It has to do with the way we think. So what neuroscience teaches us is that the human brain is an incredible pattern recognizer. So when we hear someone's voice or we hear a piece of music or we see a familiar face in a crowd, we instantly recognize it because it's a pattern that's stored in our heads. You know, when we see a chair or we see a car or a piece of toast, you know, we recognize these things immediately. We know what they are. We don't have to think about them anymore because they're patterns. Mm -hmm. Language is a pattern. Images and icons are patterns. Stories are patterns. We even see patterns where they don't exist. You know, do you ever look up at the clouds in the sky and you, you see something that you think looks like a dog or a horse or, I don't know, some other shape? <laughs> it's, be it's because your brain is constantly trying to recognize patterns. Now, that's very good in one way because it's how our brains save energy. If, if, if they didn't work like that, then we'd literally be overwhelmed by everything that's going on around us all the time. You know, every, every piece of sensory information, you see something, you hear something, it'll be like a completely new and bewildering experience, you know, and we'd have to kind of identify and interpret and analyze that to, to figure out what was going on in our environment. Now, that would make life incredibly complex. But by storing these familiar patterns for spontaneous recall, we don't have to consciously think about these things anymore. You know, they become part of the the background of our lives, our, our pattern recognition system simply takes over the job, you know, like a automatic pilot on an airplane. And what that does is it reduces the cognitive load and frees our minds to focus on other things. So, so that's the good news. Okay. The bad news is that once we form these patterns, we never really question them anymore. You know, we come to accept them the way they are. So, when you pick up your toothbrush, for example, to brush your teeth, you never ask yourself how you might make that toothbrush different or better. It's just a toothbrush. So, so there's this cognitive condition we call functional fixedness, which is a kind of a mental block that limits us to understanding and using the things around us only in the traditional ways that we've learned. So the more fixed our patterns become, the more difficult it is for us to mentally move beyond them to look at something that's conventional and then reimagine it in unconventional ways. Like say, imagining a toothbrush that you wear on your tongue, you know, or a toothbrush that's linked to a smartphone app or a singing toothbrush that plays hits by Lady Gaga. <laughs> by the way, it's true. These products actually exist. And, you know, we could, you and I could argue about their usefulness, but, but, but you could only envisage things like that by looking at something familiar i.e. a toothbrush, from a fresh perspective. So innovation is very much about, as you said, breaking out of these established patterns in our minds and looking at things in new ways. So do you remember, I mean, we all remember that when we were in kindergarten, we were much more creative, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we all say that everyone's much more creative when they're little kids. Why? It's because we haven't yet learned all of these fixed patterns. 
So our minds are open to all kinds of possibilities. You know, you look at an empty cardboard box and we imagine it as a space rocket, especially if we're boys. Um, but we actually show no signs of this functional fixedness until we're about seven years old. But then as we grow up, we encounter and we, we memorize more and more of these patterns. We, we narrow our perspectives in terms of what's possible and what's not possible. So we learn to view things and do things in particular ways. And before we know it, our thoughts and our actions are habitually following the same old established paths, you know, over and over again. And then we join a company and we learn even more patterns. We learn rules, we learn regulations and standard operating procedures and codes of conduct and traditional industry practices and so on. And these, these patterns subconsciously guide us in how we think and how we act in our daily business. And that is the danger of patterns. They stop us from thinking creatively about familiar objects or familiar situations. They induce a kind of mental laziness. So we find ourselves running on autopilot and we, we stop noticing or questioning things. This is what really blinds us to new opportunities. So the four lenses of innovation are there to help us overcome that blindness, that mental blindness, by giving us completely new ways of looking at the world. So we begin to see objects and situations from a new angle of view, you know, a very fresh perspective. And once we break these established patterns in our minds, we can start to see new patterns, or at least the potential for new patterns, and these exciting new opportunities that perhaps we've never even noticed before. Yeah, so so I'm hearing you say that it's important for uh, for listeners to be able to change the way that they think about the world or the way they think about things and the way they see the world. Do you have any recommendations for ways that people can actually go about changing the way they think? Well, changing the way you think is really difficult, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that, that actually doing that is easy. Right. It's very difficult to break those ingrained patterns, those habits of, of thought and, and, and behavior. I mean, if you've ever tried to, to, to break a habit, you know how difficult that is. But, but that's why we need a tool. That's why we need a tool to help us. Um, I mean, if, you, if you've ever tried to, I don't know, now if I said to you, drill a hole through this wall, this concrete wall, um, and try to do it just with your fingers, you know, you wouldn't get very far. But if I gave you a powerful drill, you know, you can drill through that thing in a few seconds. So, so if we're going to break these mental walls and we're going to see what's on the other side, we're going to need a tool, a systematic tool or a methodology that's going to help us do that. So thankfully, human beings are tool makers. You know, that's what we do. We make tools. So I, I remember, do you remember in the early days of Apple when Steve Jobs used, used to think of the computer as a bicycle for the mind? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that, that phrase? You know, in the sense that the computer acts as an enabling tool that vastly amplifies our natural capabilities. So I like to think of the four lenses as what I call a power tool for creative thinking because, you know, they, they really do extend our, our capacity for creativity by helping us to think along these completely new lines. Okay, great. So, so Rowan, we have we're about halfway through the set of questions that we came up with uh, after after reading through your book. So, I think what we're going to do is break this into two podcast episodes. 
Um, and, and this will be the end of the first episode, but can you talk a little bit about the book? You shared a, uh, a visual of it with me recently, in addition to the entire manuscript a few months back. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful treatment, not necessarily your normal book, I would say. How would you describe the kind of look and feel of the book and how did you come to it? Who helped you out with it? Yeah, it's really different. You know, I think if you're going to write a book on innovation, you may as well try to be a bit innovative with the book. You know, I mean, a lot of people write books and I'm guilty of it, too. My last book um, was published by Harvard Business School Press. And, you know, it looks like a dull um, textbook, you know, a school textbook. And, uh, and I wanted this time to do something that sort of captured the whole spirit of innovation. I mean, innovation's fun. I mean, it's about inventing the future, you know, and creating things that never existed before. So I wanted to somehow capture that spirit. And so this book is 304 pages of full color graphic design. It's a beautiful book. Um, I think it sort of brings this whole story to life. If you, if you, if you think about the, you know, the, the, the Renaissance period or some of these wonderful stories of, you know, how people have used the lenses in our times and then the, the power of patterns and then how we build big ideas in our minds. Imagine all of that, you know, with these beautiful illustrations. So that's what we did. And um, it's a huge project. It's been quite an epic thing to do um, because writing a book alone is, is pretty difficult. But once you get into the field of design, what happens is that if you, if I go back and I do, by the way, quite often, if I go back and change a paragraph or add a paragraph or whatever else, that shifts the entire design of the book by sometimes, you know, a page or two. So then you have to sort of go back and change the design and so on and so on. So it becomes rather difficult. But, um, but I'm glad we did it. it, it was a, it's been a real epic, and uh, I hope that people like um, that, that treatment that you just described. Absolutely. So it's not just a book, but a, a work of art. It's titled The Four Lenses of Innovation, <laughs> and uh, it's on sale today. Uh, so rush out to your bookstore and buy it or get it off of Amazon and uh, – read through it and get ready for next week's episode of the Innovation Engine Podcast. And we'll have Rowan Gibson back for part two. If you'd like to learn more about Rowan Gibson, you can visit his website at www.rowangibson.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at at Rowan Gibson. That's at R-O-W-A-N Gibson. You can buy his just published book on amazon.com. And as of today in bookstores around the world, Thanks very much to Rowan Gibson for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode for the second part of this podcast interview with Rowan Gibson. We'll look at how companies like Dell and Rolls-Royce found huge success as a result of challenging orthodoxies, how the concept of seeing the future in the present applies to innovating successfully, and the three distinct phases in the act of creation. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.